There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. A controversial case in British law when a 22-year-old man with the mental capacity of a nine-and-a-half-year-old and and the understanding of right and wrong equal to that of a six-year-old is sentenced to hang for murder. John Thomas Straffan was born on February 27, 1930, the third child in the Straffan family. His mother struggled with John, He was fussier than her other two babies, and by the time her son reached the age where his siblings had learned to walk and talk, John wasn't ready. When John was just an infant, the family left Borden Military Camp in Hampshire, where his father had been posted as a serving soldier. The family of five left England to go to India, where Mr. Straffan had found work, but while there, John became very ill. Doctors in India thought the boy had a combination of measles and sunstroke, but later in John's life, this diagnosis would be disputed by doctors in England. They thought John was misdiagnosed and that his illness had been encephalitis, a serious condition in which the brain becomes swollen and had in turn affected John's mental development. The Straffans had two more daughters, but John was upset he was no longer the youngest child. When John was eight, the family returned to England and settled in Bath, a town in southwest England. In the same year, he was cautioned by police for stealing money and a rabbit. In July of the following year, he was again cautioned for stealing a comic book. By November, he was summoned to Bath's juvenile court after he was charged with larceny. His punishment was 12 months probation, though the probation officer was displeased with John. The now 10-year-old didn't try to hide the fact he was stealing. For example, he took money from his mother's purse when travelling to meet the probation officer, he would get on the train without paying. He was referred to the Bath Medical Officer of Health, 
and interned to the Child Guidance Clinic. He was examined by psychiatrist Dr. Gordon, who said John Straffan was, quote, mentally defective, but educable. Due to a breach of his probation, he appeared in court during July 1940 and was sent to St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Boys' Home in Sanborn, Warwickshire, before being transferred to Besford Court Roman Catholic School in Worcestershire. At the time, the latter was described as a facility for mentally defective boys and girls. When he was 15, before returning to live with his parents, he was again examined. The examiner agreed with Dr. Gordon's opinion. He wrote John Straffan could be certified as mentally defective, but educable. Things remained quiet for two years, until John turned 17. In 1947, police received a number of concerning complaints. In July, it was reported that he grabbed a girl of 13 from behind, held his hand over her mouth, and said, What would you do if I killed you? I've done it before. Thankfully, the girl wriggled free and managed to escape. The incident was reported to the police, but no action was taken. On September 12, 1947, John had snuck into a chicken coop and strangled five chickens. He said it was to spite the daughter of the owner of the birds that she wouldn't associate with him, but years later he changed his motive and said it was easier to steal the chickens if they didn't flap around. Four days later he broke into a house and stole some small belongings. He was caught the next day, but while he was in custody he made an admission in his statement to police that implied he had been sexually abusing his younger sisters. Officers went to the Straffan house to investigate John's claims, but said they could find no evidence to support this. His sisters aged 12 and 10 wouldn't or couldn't say their brother had abused them, though their mother did admit she let John sleep in a bed with his sisters. He was examined by two doctors before his appearance in court during October, and one of the doctors submitted evidence to the court describing John Straffan as feeble-minded. He was to be detained under the 1913 Mental Deficiency Act to go to the colonies for mental defectives. Ashamedly, at this time, places existed in towns and villages throughout Britain where those with learning disabilities were placed, along with people that had been classed as morally defective by the courts. It was said they cannot distinguish right from wrong and represent a grave danger to the community. 900 to 1,500 people inhabited each colony. The sexes were separated and lived in large dorms. Predominantly in times of war, they were given work assignments within the confines of the war. People were harshly graded, first as profoundly disabled who were classed on the lowest rung. Next, what they described as imbeciles were seen as the middle grade, and the last was reserved for the highest functioning occupants labelled as feeble-minded. This grade was divided into two categories, moral defectives or mildly disabled, but they were deemed able to support themselves to some extent. Twice John Straffan fled the colony, each time he was caught, the second time he became violent with his captors. A decision was made to send him to live in a hostel, but that was short-lived as they reported he couldn't behave himself. He was caught stealing a bag of walnuts and so was sent back to the Hawtham Colony in Bristol. In July 1950, now aged 20, John was permitted to leave the colony on day release, but again he absconded. In April 1951, he was licensed into his parents' charge 
and three months later he was once again examined by the Bath Medical Examiner of Health. He concluded that John Straffan's mental age was that of a 10-year-old. John's IQ was marked at 58. The average IQ of an adult in the UK is 100. The examiner recommended that John should remain on licence for at least another six months, by which time he would be considered for discharge. In the same month of his assessment, John Straffan would murder his first victim. Brenda Goddard was six years old on July 15, 1951. She was picking flowers on a hill near a home in Bath after a friend had just gone home. 21-year-old John Straffan approached her, telling the six-year-old there were better flowers in the next field. He walked with her, higher up the hill, and when they reached a wall in front of a woodland, he lifted her over. Brenda's foster mother noticed the little girl had disappeared from the garden, so she went to look for her. On a search, she saw a tall man with dirty blonde hair and a blue suit, but no sign of her daughter. Worried, she called the police. After John Straffan left the scene, he got on with his day. He bought some sweets and went to the cinema. While he was calmly watching a film, others were frantically looking for the missing six-year-old. The day ended with the worst possible outcome when five hours later, the body of Brenda Goddard was found. Her cause of death was strangulation and a wound on her head also revealed she had suffered head trauma but there were no signs of sexual assault. Eventually, John Straffan's name came to the attention of detectives and he was questioned twice, but at the time there was no evidence linking him to the crime. Interest from police meant that John was let go from his most recent job at a gardener's market. At 2pm on August 8, 1951, 10-year-old Cicely Batstone left her home on Camden Road in Bath to go to the cinema alone to watch a matinee performance of Tarzan. She joined the other children in the front row as part of their Saturday tradition. Cicely wore a blue and white pinstripe dress with a red belt, grey cardigan and a pale blue ribbon in her long hair. Her mother Daisy didn't realise her daughter was missing until 10.30pm. Daisy had left the family home for a short while at 8pm but left a note for Cicely and her other daughter, assuming they were together. When one of her daughters arrived home at 10.30 without Cicely, Daisy Batstone felt there was something wrong, so called the police. After a large search, Cicely Batstone's body was found at 8.15am the next morning near a hedgerow in a field known as the Tumps, which could be reached by a gate in Bloomfield Road in Bath. That day, Daisy Batstone was taken by a police officer to identify her daughter at the Royal United Hospital. The Bath Police Force were now familiar with John Straffan and his history. John's distinctive looks meant it was less than a day before two police officers paid him a visit at the top floor flat, number two Fountain Buildings on Lansdowne Road. When they arrived, John was fixing his hair. He looked like he was planning to go out. Officers explained who they were and said they had a car waiting outside to take him to the police station for questioning. He responded, what do you want me for? According to the officers, no further conversations took place and the journey to the station was made in silence. When they arrived at the station, John Straffan was asked to take off his clothes. He asked, 
What do you want my clothes for? He was told his clothes may have a bearing on a matter for which he was about to be interviewed by senior police officers. John started talking, explaining the day and what film he saw. The officer knew John had watched the film because he had seen it too and was familiar with the plot. Their discussion about his day ended when John said, she was dead under the hedge when I found her. John was asked, do you realise the serious situation you were in? He replied, she's dead, but you cannot prove I did it. It is reported that he laughed and said there was another couple in the field at the time. John Straffen officially confessed to the murder of Cicely Batstone at Bath City Police Headquarters on August 9th, 1951. His statement read as follows. I've been cautioned by Superintendent Rudkin that I need not say anything unless I wish, but whatever I do say will be taken down in writing and given as evidence. It would be about 2pm yesterday, the 8th of August, when I left home. It was sunny. I went to go up to the forum to see Tarzan, and as the show opens at 2 o'clock, I ran there. On the way, I was stopped by a man I slightly know, who is a friend of Mr Hughes. I paid two shillings and one penny to go in, and I sat downstairs. No one was with me. There was a young girl who came about the same time, and she sat down beside me. She was dressed in a grey jumper and a blue colour frock. A little while later, she told me she liked Tarzan films, and we spoke together. She told me she was getting on towards ten years old. We left the show together. It was ten minutes to five by the clock in the forum cinema. She asked me to go to the Scala with her, and I agreed and took her to the bus. I paid three pence, two pence for myself, and a penny for her, half price. At the Scala, I bought two one-shilling tickets. We saw a Western film about United States troops. She was a bright little girl, and we were talking together in the downstairs seats. We saw the film, though, came out together, and it was light. We went for a walk straight along the 2nd Avenue district, I worked in that district about three years ago. We walked towards the new estate and cut through Englishcombe Lane. At the top of the lane we entered a field and I saw a man throwing water down at the garage. We passed through a gate and into a field and walked up a slope, turned right and walked behind the hedges. She said she was tired and laid on the grass. It was turning towards the evening. She was asleep when I left her, right near the hedge, facing the slope lying on her side. After leaving her, I bought some fish and chips at the shop near the old bridge near the traffic lights, and I think it was about quarter past ten when I got home. In the field, there was a bit of a struggle. She went limp. I was holding her at the front by the neck. A few years ago, I had a breakdown. Questioned by Superintendent Rudkin, did I know this girl? Answered no. This statement has been read to me, and it is true. John Straffen Later that day, John was questioned again about Sicily, and the subject of the murder of Brenda Goddard came up. John Straffen said, The other girl, I did her the same. He was asked if he wanted to make a written statement, and he replied, You got no witnesses. But John continued, She was picking flowers. I told her there was plenty higher up. I lifted her over the wall, and she never screamed, not even when I squeezed her neck, so I bashed her head against the wall. The next day, John spoke to a police officer. He said, I want to show you how I did the first girl after taking her over the wall. 
John Straffen used a second police officer to demonstrate. He used his right hand to grab the top of the officer's neck. His left hand sat firmly underneath. While he was acting out the murder, he said, she had her back to me when I squeezed her neck. She went limp, and as she was falling, I bashed her head against the wall. I didn't feel sorry. I forgot about it. I went back over the wall. No one saw me. Questions were raised about the degree to which John Straffen could understand and be responsible within the eyes of the law. In early October of that year, Dr. Penry Williams reported that he agreed John Straffen was a, quote, feeble-minded person, that his reason had been impaired by his mental deficiency, and that, though he had been capable of realising the nature and quality of his acts, he was probably not able to realise whether his actions were wrong. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Witnesses testified they had seen John Straffen and Cicely Batstone on the evening of her murder. Irene Spencer took to the stand and recalled her encounter with John and a young girl. At 8.05pm, she was walking through Moorfield Housing Estate when she saw a man and a little girl walking towards her. 
She described the young girl as about nine years old, dressed in a blue candy-striped dress, a grey cardigan and a white hair ribbon. Irene Spencer went on to describe the man with the child. She said the man was wearing a blue suit and I knew him. I used to work at Norton Dairies in the Fountain Buildings and the man used to live opposite. The man's name was Straffan and I identify him as the accused. The two were walking along and the little girl was holding Straffan's hand and as I saw them I wondered if the little girl would be alright and I looked at my watch and it was five minutes past eight o'clock. Geraldus Jones, a bus driver, recalled seeing a girl matching Cicely's description getting the bus with a man to travel between the two cinemas. All summer and part of the previous winter he had worked a different route and he had become familiar with a lot of the children's faces who regularly took the bus. He recognised Cicely, but he did not know the man who paid him for her fare. Violet Mabel Cowley, listed as the wife of a police constable, told the court she witnessed a man and a young girl matching John Straffan and Cicely Batstone's description when she was walking her dog near the field where Cicely's body was found. She paid close attention as there was not a lot of foot traffic in the area. Violet watched them until they walked out of sight. She took a mental note of the man, describing him as six foot tall, 20 to 21 years old, fair hair, almost blonde, wearing a navy blue suit without a hat. It was this sighting that helped police discover Cicely's body. When her husband was called upon to help with the search for the little girl, the suspicious event came to mind and Violet informed her husband of what she saw and a search of the Tumps was carried out. Barbara Burnell also told the court about a sighting of Cicely Batstone on August 8th. Barbara said she went for a stroll with her boyfriend Bernard, who she later referred to as her young man. They went to the field using the gated entrance on Bloomfield Road at 8.10pm and turned right. After walking a little, they then made their way through a gap in the hedge. The couple sat facing downhill behind the hedge and talked for about five minutes. Barbara then saw a little girl running on the peak of the hill who was with a man. The child didn't seem distressed, in fact she appeared to be very happy. They went down the hill and out of sight. Barbara said she and Bernard stayed in the field for five minutes more and then got up and walked beside the hedgerow. As they were walking, they saw the man and the girl laying face to face on the grass about four yards away. The man was playing with the girl's nose. Barbara told the court, It struck me as funny, a man that age to be with a little girl in the grass. She heard the little girl laugh before Barbara and Bernard walked through a nearby gap in the hedge. When the couple made their way into the other field, something made Barbara turn around. The man she had seen earlier got up and was staring over the hedge at her. She confirmed to the court, there was no one else in that field when I was there, apart from my young man and that man and the little girl. Another doctor, Dr. Parks, gave evidence in court, stating that John Straffan was not fit to plead. The jury accepted this argument and John was deemed unfit to plead. The judge said, in this country we do not try people who are insane, you might as well try a baby in arms. John Straffan was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital. In 
1952, roughly six months after he was detained at Broadmoor, John Straffan was permitted to work in a surgery within the confines of the hospital. His job included light cleaning duties. He had reported being bullied by other patients working the vegetable garden, so he was moved in a hope the surgery would be a better fit. On April 29th, he got up in the morning and got dressed in a dark pinstripe suit and layered his baggy uniform over the top. No one noticed when he turned up for duties that day. At 2.40pm, he found the opportunity to scale the brick wall and make a run for it. Broadmoor staff quickly realised John was missing. Staff were sent out on bicycles to search the neighbouring woodland and nearby town of Crowthorne, but John Straffan managed to avoid capture for four hours. Within his short burst of freedom, another little girl, five-year-old Linda Boyer, lost her life. The day after his capture, John Straffan gave a statement to police. I'm reading it in its entirety to illustrate how he talks in detail about every point of his escape, but not the murder of Linda Boyer. Some of his recollections of this period were both confirmed and disputed later by witnesses in court. The statement was dated April 30th, 1952, and read as follows. Yesterday afternoon, I went over to the surgery to work. I did one room, then I went and got a duster and went to Mr. Cash and asked him if I could go out and shake the duster. I was out about two minutes and then another patient came out and asked me if I had finished shaking the duster. I said I've finished off now and he went back in. Then I climbed the roof and then I jumped over the wall, ran down towards the road. I climbed over a fence into some woods. I went through the woods and saw a road and ran down. I got down to the bottom of the road crossed the road and went down the lane. I saw a woman outside her house. I asked her for a cup of water. She gave me a water and a cup of tea. When I drank that, I asked her which way I could get through the woods to the village. She told me, and went through the woods and came up near a school. I think it is Crowthorn. I walked down the street and crossed the road and turned down another road. There was a shoe shop near the corner. I went down this road and saw two men on bikes. They turned around and came back and I dived through the woods. Came out from the woods on a golf course. I climbed up towards the railway lines. Saw two staff at the far end then. I climbed over the wire and ran through some people's gardens. I then crossed the road into some more woods. I then walked right through the woods. Then I walked up a path in the woods. I then saw some people by a house near a main road. I crossed the main road into some more woods. I saw a man near a house. I think he was blind. I asked him which way I could get through the woods. He told me to go one way, but I went the opposite. After about two or three minutes, I came to another path. I then came to a private house. I walked through the grounds. Climbed into a field. I kept to the fields for a long time after that. I then walked onto a road. I was near a village then. I walked up the hill, saw a pub on top of the hill. I saw about four little girls talking in the road not far from the pub. One of the little girls ran into a house crying. The other two went towards the pub. The other one went back to her house. When I looked back, she had a bike and was riding up behind me. I heard a man, I think he was from the shop, and asked her if her mother was home. I think she said yes. The man then got into a van which was parked outside the shop. Then I walked straight along the road, turned around again. The girl wasn't there at all. Then I went to a house along the road past the shop. 
I saw a woman and two children outside the house on the lawn. I put my hands up and she came over. I asked her for a drink of water and she gave me a drop of water. Another woman in the home asked me if I would like a cup of tea. I said yes. She gave me a pot of tea, milk, sugar and biscuits and brought me a newspaper. She then left me to read my newspaper and have my tea. When I'd finished, I took all the stuff back inside the house, then asked her how far it was to the nearest town. I asked if she had got a wireless. She told me she had one, but the battery was gone. I then closed the door and left, then went on towards the roadway from the shops and turned right. I got about 10 or 15 yards. I saw a man in the field and asked him where was the nearest town. He told me about six miles. I asked him what time the buses were running. He told me there's one about ten past seven that night. I told him I've got plenty of time, then I walked down the road. I met two more people and asked them which was the quickest way to the bus stop. They told me to take the left road. There was two roads where I saw a man on a bike. I said, good afternoon, to him. He said the same to me. I walked down towards the main road. A lorry came along. I tried to get a lift. He did not stop. After about five minutes, another car came. I put my hand up and she stopped. She asked which way I was going. I said towards the town. She gave me a lift and I was speaking to her in the car. She asked me if I was a foreigner. I said no. I told her I came from Hampshire and told her I lived in Winchester. I didn't speak no more. After that she dropped me by the pub and I got out and she told me a bus would come along. I saw her speak to the staff so I ran through the pub and came out onto a field. I saw some children in there. I came back into the same field again. I saw the children again. I looked towards the main road and the children got frightened. They wondered what it was about. So I climbed into another field and then ran. I saw the staff coming from the other fields. I climbed through another wire fence which led into some woods. After about two minutes I climbed up a bank and hid. The staff then came and caught me. I've been shown a photograph by the police officer of a little girl and that is a photo of the little girl who I saw with the bike near the pub and who followed me up the road. The statement was signed J.T. Straffen. The girl on the bicycle that John Straffen said that followed him was Linda Boyer. She was reported missing at 10.30pm that evening. John said he overheard part of a conversation between Linda and her stepfather, Roy Sims. He said that his last interaction with his stepdaughter was at five o'clock. He asked her, has your mother got tea ready? She laughed and said no. Roy explained to the press that Linda was actually supposed to be outside of the village hall meeting friends who had been to a brownies meeting. He said they came out at quarter to seven we shall not know until daylight whether Linda spoke to or spent any other time with the brownies. At the time, the police were keeping their cards close to their chest. They told the press they felt that John Straffen could not have seen Linda during his hours away from Broadmoor. Linda's body was discovered in a bluebell wood in Farley Hill the next day. Her bicycle was 200 yards away. Two and a half hours after the discovery of Linda Boyer's body, John Straffen was paid a visit by two police officers. They were accompanied by some male nurses who all filed into his room. They probed John, asking him to go over the details of his escape. 
He was asked, are you prepared to tell us what you did and where you went? John started from the escape and a police officer cut him short. Yes, we know all that, but we should like to know what else you did and if you got into any mischief. John Straffham replied, I did not kill her. The officer responded, What do you mean you did not kill her? There's been no suggestion that anyone has been killed, injured or in any way attacked. John responded bitterly, I know what you policemen are. I know I killed two little children, but I did not kill the little girl. The officer replied, What do you know about a little girl being killed? John repeated, I did not kill her. A little girl was in fact killed quite close to where you were arrested, the officer said. John replied, I did not kill the little girl with the bicycle. It's documented that John Straffan had no access to newspapers or a radio in his cell prior to this visit. John Straffan was charged with murder at Reading Police Court. He was photographed arriving at court with a swollen face. He had two black eyes, bruised lips, cuts and scratches. The superintendent of Broadmoor launched an inquiry into John's injuries. The four members of staff that caught him while he was on the run said he had put up a fight and came at them with a tree branch and a scuffle resulted in John Straffan's injuries. The press and public were now concerned about the security in Broadmoor. If John Straffan found it so easy to escape, what was stopping the other patients? Newspapers presumed the patients had an easy life with freedoms and luxuries the general public thought they should not be permitted. Before his trial, John Straffan was remanded in custody at Brixton Prison. In contrast to his first appearance for the murders of Brenda Goddard and Cicely Batstone, this time he was deemed legally sane and fit to stand trial. The trial began on July 21st, 1952. At the time, the prosecution weren't usually permitted to present evidence from other convictions, but as John was deemed unfit to stand trial for the murders of Brenda Goddard and Cicely Batstone, this evidence was submitted. On the first day of the trial, testimony was heard from a number of witnesses. However, the following day, the judge arrived late. He had had some business to attend to that would halt the proceedings. One of the jurors went out the night before and after a couple of drinks told the patrons that he believed John Straffan was not guilty and thought it was one of the witnesses that had murdered Linda Boyer. The jury was dismissed and a new selection was sworn in. The press couldn't get enough of the case and had staged a photograph with all three of the murdered girl's mothers. It was a concern that such an image could make a juror automatically group Linda Boyer's murder with Brenda Goddard and Cicely Batstone. The trial started again from day one. Many witnesses were called forward who saw John Straffan within the four hours of his escape. However, some of their times didn't quite match, and one of the witnesses claimed to have heard a female scream near the local pub after John Straffan was caught. Further evidence also fueled the fire for those who believed that John Straffan wasn't guilty of Linda Boyer's murder. The autopsy showed that the five-year-old had been strangled, which was John Straffan's method for the first two murders. However, there were five scratches on the side of Linda's neck that appeared to have been made by the nails of the culprit's right hand. John Straffan had always chewed his nails down to the quick. 
Another bone of contention was that John Straffan's fingerprints were not discovered on Linda's discarded bike. Previous doctors and a new specialist were brought in to give details on John Straffan's understanding, mental age and his capability for understanding consequences of right or wrong. It took the jury just under half an hour to declare John Straffan both legally sane and guilty. The penalty was death. So where are we now? A date was set for the hanging of John Thomas Straffan on Thursday, September 4th, 1952 at 9am. An appeal had been put forward straight after the trial. On August 29th, a week before his planned execution date, Wandsworth Prison received a letter stating that John's sentence had now been commuted to life imprisonment. The reason given was John Straffan was, quote, not a lunatic, but because he was sufficiently mentally defective, was not fully responsible for his crimes. The trial and the reprieve afterwards caused an uproar at every point, both within the prison system and with the public. After the trial, newspaper offices, MPs and the Home Secretary were bombarded with letters from the public. Most of the correspondents expressed the view that sentencing a man with the mind and consciousness of a nine-and-a-half-year-old was wrong, though when his sentence was commuted, it stirred up an entirely different set of concerns. The public feared that in prison he would be eligible for parole and so free to kill more children. In a letter sent from a father to the Home Secretary in August 1952, it simply said, Are you the father of a small girl who might be Straffan's next victim? I am. Staff at Wandsworth Prison were not sure what to do with their well-known prisoner. John Straffan spent most of his time alone in his cell, but was intermittently let out to perform light cleaning duties. Since he couldn't return to Broadmoor, Wandsworth officials suggested Rampton Secure Hospital might be a more suitable home for him. He left Wandsworth, but like many long-term prisoners, he was transferred to numerous prisons throughout the UK. Before an appeal in 2001, John Straffham's solicitor said, I believe that a miscarriage of justice has occurred. His instructions are that he is responsible for the murders of the first two children, but that he was stitched up for the murder of Linda Boyer, who he says was killed by somebody else during the four hours he was on the run from Broadmoor. In 2002, John's appeal was denied. On November 19, 2007, John Thomas Straffan died of natural causes in the healthcare unit of Franklin Prison, County Durham, at the age of 77. He served over 55 years, making him one of Britain's longest-serving prisoners. John Straffan never admitted killing Linda Boyer. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To support They Walk Among Us and receive early access to ad-free episodes, just head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguss. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.